are listening to the Heartland Author Podcast. I am Aaron Apollo Camp. For today's episode, I had the opportunity to interview Danielle Orsino. Danielle is a martial artist and the author of the Birth of the Fae series of fantasy novels. In the interview, topics as varied as cosplaying, professional wrestling, and Danielle's work as a nurse were discussed in addition to the Birth of the Fae series. I'm here with Danielle Orsino. Did I pronounce your name correctly? Yes, you did. Uh, Danielle is the author of The Birth of the Fae uh, fantasy series. Danielle, welcome to the Heartland Author Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Feel free to introduce yourself to our listeners. My name is Danielle M. Orsino. I am the author, as you said, of The Birth of the Fae series. And uh, it's my first series. It's my debut series, as they say. And I kind of consider myself uh, the gateway drug into the fantasy world for anybody who has not yet experienced the fantasy series. How did your work as a nurse lead you to become an author? Uh, It was something I fell into. I didn't I didn't want to be an author. It wasn't something that I dreamt of being. But what happened was I met a patient who needed a distraction as he sat in the IV chair. And I told him a story after having a conversation. I just kind of made up a story and put him in it. And from there, the Birth of the Face series was born. How does your background in martial arts assist you as an author? Can you tell us more about your uh, martial arts background? Uh, As a martial artist, it's assisted me in making my fight scenes. I actually videotape all my fight scenes on my phone before I write them. So uh, I don't do big battle fight scenes. Like you won't see uh, like Lord of the Rings kind of sweeping battles on horseback because I don't ride horses. Uh, Everything is close contact kind of things, small group fight scenes. But I started in martial arts. I started in Taekwondo, ITF style, which is the older version of Taekwondo, what it originated as. And uh, then I moved on to Kung Fu, Wushu. I competed in Taekwondo. Then I started competing in uh, soft style. I competed at the WKA World Championships for Team USA. I represented Team USA. That's where I won my silver medal in 2008. I've done martial arts for 20 years. And so I've, I've traveled everywhere. I've competed everywhere. I've been inducted into the Hall of Fame. Forms was my specialty. I did fight. I enjoyed fighting, but forms was kind of really my thing. And from there, I've done stunt work, all different things. I've worked with Vincent Lynn. I've worked with the WW when it was the WWE or WWF. I'm sorry, before it turned into the WWE. I worked with The Rock, Kane, The Undertaker, uh, all those guys, Mankind, everybody. I got to work with China. So I had a lot of fight choreography experience, and then I was able to work on the fanfic um, Wonder Woman Balance of Power from Red Cape Cinema. And I really got to get into fight choreography and all of that, so that I applied to writing because I, I love my superhero films. I mean, who doesn't? Everybody loves, you know, the Marvel Universe, DC, I don't know so much about that and where that's going, but I, the one thing I noticed with it was it's always from one point of view and you always see just a fist or a cape or, or something you can't really see the fight scene and that was something that kind of always bothered me so when I wrote the fight scenes in the series I wanted 
the reader to feel like they were right in the middle of it and they could really envision it. So the first thing I did was, like I said, I, I started to videotape it and I would videotape it from different angles. I would videotape it from the attacker. Then I would videotape it from the person being attacked and I'd watch it. And then I think, how am I going to write this? And what would be most interesting to the reader? So I really kind of utilize that martial arts and fight choreography to figure out how the reader would be most entertained. So that really helped the most. And I hope that it comes across that way. And the feedback I've gotten is that the readers enjoy it. So that's really what counts. And before I go into uh, the question about uh, your book series, I'm going to ask you, what is it like to work with The Undertaker, whose real name is Mark Calloway, I believe? Uh, he stayed in character the entire time. You did not speak to him. Uh, he only, he stayed right there. So uh, it was interesting. I can say The Rock was probably the nicest person I've ever worked with. China was actually very sweet as well. Uh, and Mankind, Nick, Mick Foles, was extremely sweet. Very nice, actually. Uh, but The Rock was probably the nicest guy I've ever met. You know, it was before he blew up. Like, nobody knew he was going to be who he is today. Uh, but The Rock, hands down, was the nicest guy like on set, he was just absolutely awesome. I uh, worked with Triple H there as well. It was a big Super Bowl commercial. It was actually the first Super Bowl commercial the WWF had ever done. That was like, they spent a lot of money on it. It was the first time they were really going to promote themselves. And uh, they were every major wrestler at the time was in the building doing it. So uh, I, like I said, everybody was there, but The Rock, awesome. Like, awesome regular guy. We wound up playing video games while he was waiting, while it was call time, and he was great. But The Undertaker stayed in character the whole time. Like, you weren't allowed to look at him, talk to him. He was just The Undertaker. He never broke character. Everybody else was just chilling and hanging. He stayed in character. Wow. I mean, <laughs> that is impressive. The Taker never broke character. Nope. Uh, while in a non-actual uh, wrestling uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> production. Nope, never broke it. Like, didn't look at him like nothing. He was the entire time. Uh, like I said, The Rock was just chilling, like hanging out. Like I said, we wound up playing video games because they have every video game WWF had ever put out. Like the arcade games were all there. We wound up playing video games while he was waiting because they were resetting. Um, He had a pretty complicated scene uh with a stunt and, and broken glass and this whole thing so he just kept resetting and he would have a lot of time so we were playing video games and having a good time but the undertaker never broke character no without spoiling too much of the birth of the face series how many books are in the series in total and what are each of them about and what is the series about there are six books plus one novella. So there are seven in total, and that completes volume one. Uh, overall, the series is about fallen angels that uh, can't go back home. They're sent here by the creator to get the earth ready for his next great experiment, which is humans. They've all heard rumblings that it might be humans, but they're not 100% sure. Uh, the virtue angels are nature angels. So they each have a job like getting rivers ready. Some are elementals that take care of wind and air. Some guard 
deer. They all have a, a job of some kind, and they're sent here to get the Earth prepared for his experiment. Then there are the Power Brigade Angels. Their job, they are the foot soldiers of the Archangels. Their job is to fight Lucifer and his demonic horde. Both of these things are simultaneously being done. So, you know, they're fighting the demonic horde. The virtue angels are just here on earth, kind of minding their own business. They have no desire to get involved in the war. They're just taking care of the planet. So that is what's going on in Locked Out of Heaven, the first book. While this is happening, they're both told, as soon as your jobs are done, of course you can return to the Shining Kingdom. That is what I promised you, of course. And then one day, their jobs are done. Uh, Lucifer's horde returns to hell and the planet is done, but they both hear the gates of the Shining Kingdom lock and close and they are stuck on Earth. They don't know why. No one tells them anything. They're just stuck here and their wings decay and fall off. So they all of a sudden realize we can't go home. We don't know why, but now we must find a new job, a new purpose, because this was all they were created for. They don't know what else to do. So from there, the book takes place with both of them, both of these groups trying to figure out what do we do? They don't even care at this point why they were locked up. They spend a little time trying to figure it out, but they both realize, okay, we can't go home, what's happening? And then humans come and they become uh, to the humans, the pagan gods and goddesses throughout time. And then they, the humans kind of, try to figure out what their purpose is. And then these angels decree that they are then called the Fae. But the Fae doesn't stand for fairies. It stands for the Fellowship Ages of Earth, the Forgotten Angels on Earth, the Fallen Angels on Earth. They kind of give it their own acronym and become the Court of Light and the Court of Dark. But as they realize human worship equals power, it gives them back some control and a civil war breaks out between the Court of Light and Dark because they feel like, hmm, there's not enough power. There's not enough human worship. So we're going to fight amongst ourselves. And so the books then take on through human history. And we see what happens when the Fae fight, when they kind of play in human history. The Court of Light deems themselves more um, beneficial to human humankind. They want to help because uh, that's what they were. They were nurturers. They nurtured the planet. So they feel like we should help these creatures while the court of dark is kind of like, yeah, not so much. You know, it's not that we want to get involved, but eh, we're just going to kind of do our own thing. So we just see how that takes on. And like I said, they become the Greek, Roman, Egyptian gods and goddesses through the polytheistic uh, pantheon throughout history. And uh, it takes you all the way up to book six, which is forgive us. And that's to the bubonic plagues of London and how the Fae have just played in human history, and we see where that goes from there. How did the decision to put you on the cover of each book in the Birth of Fae series come up? Because unusually for a fantasy series, uh, you're actually cosplaying on, on the cover. Uh, that came about as uh, originally I had a whole, you know, authors always have these grand ideas for uh, the covers, you know, it always has these hidden meanings. Originally, I had a different idea when I went to the publisher and I was like, oh, I've got the symbolism, I've got this, I've got that. And uh, they had seen me cosplaying. I've been a cosplayer for years. Usually I'm cosplaying as Harley Quinn or Wonder Woman, you know, Catwoman. And I had made a name for myself 
you know, on the circuit. But what happened was Fay Magazine contacted me when they heard the book was coming out. And uh, Karen Kay, who's just amazing, and I love her. I call her my uh, fairy godmother. She had said, you know, let's do something and let's do a feature on the books and all that. And she said, um, why don't you dress up because you're a cosplayer? Why don't you dress up as one of the characters and we'll see. So I had done some shots promo and the publisher had seen it. And their idea was, what if we do something with these shots instead of, they weren't thrilled with the ideas I had come up with for the cover. So they actually had had this idea to put me on the cover and cosplay. So they had come up with the, um, with the mock-up for Locked Out of Heaven featuring Serena the Mermaid. And then from there, it just kind of took off. And uh, we had done it that way. So it wasn't, I did not plan it. It wasn't like, oh, I have to be on my covers. It was nothing like that. It just kind of came from my cosplay background. Has your name ended up on any blasphemy list? And if so, how do you react when you see your name on a blasphemy list? Uh, I'm on two. I'm aiming for a third. Third time's a charm. Um, yes, I've been on two blasphemy lists right now. Uh, I don't know if I'm on any others. Like I said, I don't know if I've made that third one yet. But uh, what happened was when I was with my first publisher, uh, the first edition of Locked Out of Heaven, because this the one out right now is the second uh, after I switched publishers. The first time was just due to a, a mix-up, actually. When uh, the book was being uploaded it was mistakenly put into the Christian fiction category. We don't know why. I think it was just a mix-up with the name. And some people got a hold of the book, I guess believing it, you know, based on the name, it was going to have a certain message, which it did not. And people took it to heart and freaked out because, uh, you know, it's a fantasy book, but I don't know. They they took it the wrong way uh, because it has angels, because I do use um, the pantheon of the angelic, you know, lineage. You know, there were there are actually I did research. There were virtue angels in the Bible. And I, I do use certain biblical events to explain the fey battles. Uh, people felt this was blasphemous. And so I wound up on two blasphemy lists. Uh, there was a petition to the Vatican to remove the book and ban it. Um, I don't know what happened. Uh, people were very upset. I was uh, banned by a Christian ethics group or something. Um, I received several, you know, hate mail and, and things like that. Um, I received some death threats. Um, you know, it got pretty heated for a while that people were very upset with me and felt what I was doing, you know, was so upset. There was one chapter, there's one chapter in the book called Empathy for the Devil, where uh, two of the Dark Fae are discussing the fact that, you know, the creator, who I never call God, it's just the creator, but um, they're discussing the fact that they've been locked out and they had served the army well. But Lucifer took his horde, his demons home and protected them. So they're just going back and forth saying, you know, who's really the bad guy they're just kind of having this philosophical debate which happens at times of war people debate like which side is good which side is bad and apparently this caused just an outrage and people were so upset with it so that caused me some problems and i started getting dms on instagram where people were saying you know you, you need a better relationship with god and can we have your home address because we want to send you some materials some pamphlets and things like that 
to help your relationship. And at first, the first time I started getting it, I remember being so upset and not knowing how to respond. And then after you get a couple more and then people start threatening you with like horrible things, I finally just turned it around and I would answer them with stuff like, um, Lucifer has not told me what realm of hell we will be living in after we are married. But once I do, I will totally send you that address. As for now, you know, we're registered at Bed Bath & Beyond. Please send towels. You know, things like that. Like I just started making a joke out of it because I just didn't know what else to do because it was just like so absurd. Yeah, sure. I'm going to send you my home address. Like, what are you people crazy? And then, you know, they were like, it was just getting so nuts that I just, at one point, I think I did an interview dressed as Lucifer's bride because I was so like, what do you think is happening? It is a fantasy book. And that was just locked out of heaven. I'm like, wait till you people get the kingdom come. Cause I really poked the bear there. Uh, they just stirred the pot. I'm like, you're, you're literally kicking the hornet's nest. And I had, I wrote the book never with the intention to annoy anybody, upset anybody. But I'm like, you really want to go there? I can go there. Like, you know, I'm like, we can go there if you people want to go there. Um, it was just never done that way. But I would get, I remember I had one person from a group uh, literally send a picture of a handgun with a date underneath it. And I was like, you guys get this is over a book about like mermaids and unicorns. <laughs> like, we're at a level 10 here, people. Like, let's take this down a notch um so, so now i just i laugh it off i'm like if the pope has nothing better to do than to ban my book first of all that'll probably rocket me to like new york times bestseller list but if that's all he has to do there are so many other bigger problems in this world but okay like i'll send them a copy we'll go riding around in the pope mobile and like we can totally talk about it but I'm thinking he doesn't have a problem with it. It's so, you know, a blasphemy list. I kind of take it as like I've made it. That's I'm, I'm wearing it like a badge of honor. You know, it's all good. Mm -hmm. I often like to say, if somebody doesn't want you to read a book, read it. Yeah, that's. I, I just, at this point, I kind of, I, originally when it happened, I was really upset about it. Like, I actually went out of my way to do an interview about it because I was like, I have to like dispel this. And the interview went so left, like so left that I was like, you know what? I got to stop taking this so seriously. I, I just, that's when I just made a joke out of it. I'm like, okay, I'm on a blasphemy list. I'm in really good company. So uh, who cares at this point? Okay, ban the book. Like, what are you going to do about it? It's a fantasy book. Like I said, I have a unicorn. I have a talking unicorn in Locked Out of Heaven. I literally have a talking unicorn named Lolita. I, I, what am I going to say to that? You want to ban a book about a talking unicorn? It's one chapter. Like, to me, even saying it out loud, it's like, really? That's your. Okay, sure. Have a good time. You know? What are you going to do? Have a great time with it. Ridiculous. So, yeah, I'm on a blasphemy list. I'm on two. Like I said, I'm aiming for a third. Get the kingdom come and then talk to me. There's literally a chapter called The Jesus Factor. Go have a ball, people. Enjoy. How much research do you do for books that you write? Uh, I do actually 
even when I started doing this, I was like, I wonder how many, like how much research you do for fantasy. Cause I really didn't know. I'm like, you make up worlds. How bad could it be? I did more research than I ever thought I would. Uh, I didn't realize, I didn't know the term world building. And I've often made this joke. If you want to know how not to write a book, come talk to me. Cause I've made every mistake known to mankind. Um, and I don't know the ter- right terms like plotter, pantser. I had no idea. I think I was asked that once in an interview and I thought it was like a sex term. Um, I didn't know how much I would do the most I did. The most research I did was on my dragons. Those took months and months and months to figure out, but I do extensive research. Uh, As for the angels, like I said, I didn't know there were nature angels. When I looked at the hierarchy of them, there were really virtue angels. That's what they were called. They were nature angels. Obviously there's no such thing as power brigade angels. I made that up, but I did do extensive research even into the Bible and doing, you know, some of the stuff that I did and writing uh, some of the events. I did do a lot of research on that uh, for Tudor, for the Tudor England, which is takes place in Thine Eyes of Mercy. That's the time frame. I actually took a Tudor etiquette class to figure out exactly how they ate, uh, what, what all the hierarchy was just in society during that time, the courtiers, how they got dressed, all of that. Uh, there's a scene where Awen is one of the bishops of the court of light and he has to kind of go undercover in uh, Queen Mary's court. So figuring out exactly how he would dress and the order he would put his clothes in, on was extensive and being a Viscount versus, you know, any other uh, societal title I could give him. That was the only one I could give him because he wouldn't own land and, you know, how I would kind of figure that out. I had to take this Tudor England, um, this Tudor etiquette class and how he would eat. You know, they ate usually family style. And you had to, you know, show washing your hands in this rose water before you could eat, carrying your utensils in a pouch because that showed wealth. All those like little details I wanted to throw in there. And I made the mistake. I took a, um, a class in Old English and I wrote the first manuscript in Old English. All those chapters were written in Old English. And my first editor was like, are you crazy? They were like, nobody can read this. And I'm like, oh, it makes me so authentic. And they were like, no, it doesn't. Nobody can read this crap. They were like, you get a thy, a thou, and a privy. That's all I'm giving you. And they were like, the rest of it's got to go. Uh, all that stuff. You know, you kind of get lost, I think, as a writer, especially when you are not a classically trained or you went to school for this. You do so much to prove that this is what you should be doing. You tend to go overboard. And I definitely did that a couple of times, uh, you know, Later on, doing a lot of this alternative history that I did, I studied, like I said, the bubonic plague and little incidences that happened, trying to add them in. So, like I said, studying the history and things like that. Uh, Later on in volume two, uh, Birth of a Succubus, which is a continuation of it, I did a lot of research into the CIA. And I still call my patient who inspired all this you know, he, he knows a lot about some of this stuff and asking him, you know, do they use this gun? What would they do here? And he gives me that uh, type of information. And uh, that's where kind of some also the medical stuff where my nursing background helps. Uh, I've called my old nursing instructors and asked them to read some of the medical stuff to make sure it's legitimate. And I try not, I try to make it as realistic as possible. I, I always joke that if I'm on Mythbusters, I just want to be plausible. I don't have to be confirmed, but I just like to be plausible because I don't want to be a book that somebody reads and goes, oh my God, that would just never happen. 
I want to be at least somewhat realistic because I think it helps you get lost in it a little bit more. And that's really what I'm looking for is for the reader to get lost in whatever they're reading of mine so they can kind of forget about their troubles for just a little bit. What is the worst mistake you made and the best advice you received as an author? I'm asking my final question. It's kind of a double question. Um, I've made a lot of mistakes. Uh, the, the worst mistake I've made probably is not taking enough control in the beginning and being too trusting. Uh, so I would tell anybody you know, kind of goes hand in hand a little bit. Um, when you are signed with a publisher, or even if you are self-publishing, get an editor, pay the money for an editor, and still check their work. I don't care. This was a mistake I made with um, the first edition. Uh, I remember I had a, I had a great developmental editor. Cleet Barrett Smith is phenomenal. If anybody, if you look him up, he's best-selling author, New York Times. He's phenomenal. I had him as my developmental editor, and I still use him to this day. He's my Yoda. I cannot say enough wonderful things about Cleet. He was phenomenal. I didn't know the difference between line editing, this editing. Like, I didn't know those differences. After I, I had Cleet developmental edit, I moved on to line editing and whatnot. And I found a woman who was like, yeah, 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 I'll totally line edit. I'll do this. She knew I was dyslexic. I should never have told her that. And she didn't do her job. But I also didn't know with line editing, they only catch about 80%. You need to have someone else like kind of read it. And I gave it to someone else and I trusted them, which was a mistake. And then I was like, oh, you did your job. Awesome. I should have been on top of it to check it. And I didn't. So when the book came out, there were mistakes in it. Uh, part of it was also due to COVID and you know, it was going to different printing houses who were, it was a, mis a mess. And people were writing me being like, oh, you know, on page 12, the is spelled wrong. And I'm like, I'm dyslexic. I have no idea. But you need to get that line editor. You need to pay the money and make sure you have someone else look at it. Uh, don't try to do it all yourself. That was a huge mistake for me because at the end of the day, it's your name is still on it. And this is a, a big myth. Readers think that the authors read their book. We don't. We've read it so many times when we're writing it. Our mind autocorrects things. We're sick of it too. And we're on to the third book. Like we're already past that book. So people would write me and be like, on this, it's wrong. On this, didn't you pay for an editor? I'm like, dude, I, yeah, I paid for an editor. Like you have no idea. Uh, and it, But it's still a reflection on us. So that was a huge mistake. You got to pay for the editor. You just do. And you got to sit and reread your stuff. You know, it's like, it's one of the things... Yeah, you got to do it. Um, so that was that was a big mistake, and it was a learning thing. And the problem is, is once you print it, it's out there. That's it. It's kind of like your yearbook picture. You mm -hmm. thought you looked hot in it. You thought like you know that haircut was great and the blue eyeshadow was awesome. And then you go back and go, "What the hell was I thinking?" But you got to just own it. And so I own the first edition, and I joke with people now, and I'm like, "Just think, when I'm really famous, that'll be worth money." And I just kind of shrug my shoulders and go, if that's going to stop you from reading book two, what can I tell you? It's going to stop you. The story's still good. But if, you know, these little things catch it, okay. I moved on from it. Uh, you know, second edition is great. Okay. 
so that was a big learning experience. So anybody I would tell moving forward, like I said, whether you're with a publisher or you're self-publishing, still get your own editor. To this day, I still use Cleat for developmental editing. I still have my own line editor now. I found Christina. She's awesome. It still goes to her before it ever goes to my publisher. I still do that because I just don't want the mistakes. And but like I said, even after publishing, even after going to another editor, even after all that with my publisher, I will still look at the book and go, why is is spelt with two S's? And I go back to my publisher and I'm like, what, what is happening? There are still going to be mistakes in a book. No book is perfect. And I, readers still come back and they're like, do you know on page three, you know, and is spelled A-A-N-D. And I'm like, okay, look, I've done everything I possibly can. There will still be a mistake in the book. I said, no book is perfect. If you're going to crucify me <laughs> for that, what do you want me to do? Like, that's going to stop you from it? Yeah. You probably weren't that into me to begin with. So whatevs. But like I said, all I can tell people is just do the most you can and don't rely on everybody else. Like at the end of the day, your name is on the book. No one else, doesn't matter who the publisher is. They're not going to go back and go, oh, Harper Collins put this book out. They're going to look and be like, oh, it's so-and-so. That's, they're going to look at it and say, you, you put the book out. But I can tell readers, most authors don't read their own book. You, it's kind of embarrassing. It's like listening to your own voicemail and listening to your voice. Like you don't, you know, you don't sit there and go, oh, let me listen to my own voicemail that I left. Nobody does. We all hate our, you know, like you all hate like one thing about yourself you don't do it it's kind of like that like we don't sit there and read our own work and be like okay this is what i said so it's you kind of have to give an author a little bit of grace on that danielle you are a wonderful guest for this podcast and i thank you for appearing on the heartland author podcast oh thank you so much well you were a wonderful interviewer so i completely appreciate you Danielle was one of the more interesting guests I've had the opportunity to interview, and she was a wonderful guest. This is Aaron Apollo Camp reminding y'all to write your imagination. Bye for now. You can learn more about me and my book writing projects at camparenapollo.witsite.com forward slash author AAC. You can follow me on Facebook at AuthorAAC and on Instagram at AACScribe. Copyright 2023, Aaron Apollo Camp, All Rights Reserved. This podcast episode is intended for the private listening of our audience. Any reuse or retransmission of this podcast episode without the express written consent of the podcast host is prohibited, except under fair use guidelines. Royalty-free music and sound effects obtained from https colon forward slash forward slash www.zapsplat.com.